Now today, I get to walk you through Revelation chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles open, you can go to Revelation chapter 18, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time today. Now, I'm really looking forward to our message today because we are getting into some deep things in the book of Revelation. I don't know if you've noticed over the weeks, but things have really picked up. It has gotten more and more intense, and that is certainly continuing now. What we're looking at today is we are looking at God's growing judgment on humanity, especially people who say no to Him. And so as I was thinking about that this week and and thinking about kind of how to think of it, it reminded me of a time from American history. Now, uh, you you might remember uh, studying American history, the time called the Great Depression. And we know that the Great Depression was this 10-year-long economic depression that affected all of America and created stock market crash and real estate prices just going through the floor and incredible unemployment, breadlines, all that kind of stuff. Uh, But when it first started, people didn't really think it was going to be that bad. The Secretary of Labor at the time, James Davis, he said just a few weeks into the Great Depression, he said, we have hit bottom and are on the upswing. He's like, this is as bad as it's going to get. Just be a few weeks, and then we're going to recover, and we'll be okay, everyone. But not uh, just two years later, the former president of the United States, Calvin Coolidge, he said this. He said, in other periods of depression, it has always been possible to see some things which were solid and upon which you could base hope. But as I look around about, I now see nothing to give ground to hope. In two years, the the leadership of America went from, hey, this is okay, it's no big deal, to two years later, there is no hope here. There is nothing to look forward to. Now, thankfully, there was hope eventually. Things did eventually turn around. But I was thinking of that passage today because today we're going to look at uh, one city, one nation that is symbolic of so much in the book of Revelation. And we're going to see what happens when this powerful city, wealthy city, comes to an end. It explains a time of human turmoil and frustration and anxiety and fear. I don't know if you can relate to a time like that at all, but uh, that's the time that is being described in the book of Revelation. And I think this is a really important passage because it teaches us what God thinks about things like greed and materialism. It teaches us about the dangers of the temptation of of sinful choices and and where that leads us. It, It teaches us Uh, how, as Christians, God wants us to live in a society that is often opposed to Him. And so today we're going to talk about leaving Babylon, all right, how to leave Babylon. And uh, I'll explain what that means as we get deeper into it. Now, what we're going to see today is, and what really frames a lot of this, is the judgment of God. And that's really a big topic as we start today, is that God brings His judgment to the world's greatest powers. That's really what's going on in Revelation chapter 18, is that God is bringing His judgment to the world's great powers in the world. Now, as we get into Revelation, I want you to remember a few things. I want you to remember that in every passage of the book of Revelation, you you have to put on different sets of glasses, right? Sometimes you need to put on your first century glasses, the, the book of Revelation is written to Christians living in the first century, and so it speaks to them and their situation living under the Roman Empire. The other thing is you need to put on a pair of what we call future glasses. 
Because the book of Revelation not only describes events of the first century, but it also describes events relating to the return of Jesus and shortly leading up to the return of Jesus and the second coming. But that's in the future. We don't know when. Could be in a half hour. Could be in 2,000 years. We have no idea. Then there's the universal glasses. The universal glasses teach us what every passage of the book of Revelation speaks to each generation. Because there have been lots of generations of humanity since the writing of Revelation. Jesus still hasn't come back, and yet Revelation speaks to them. And then there's the contemporary glasses. What does this mean for us today? Living in 2020, living in Utah, living in Cache Valley. And so that's how we're going to tackle it. And the one other thing I would, I would just encourage you with is that the book of Revelation, it's hard to read, hard to understand if you've been reading through it. I hope you've been reading through it. There's a lot of imagery. There are a lot of pictures that are very difficult to understand. And the reason is this. That the images in Revelation come from two main places. They come from the Old Testament, and they come from the first century. And since, if, we, if you're not very familiar with the Old Testament, very few people are, then you're not going to always understand those images. And if you don't live in the first century, and none of you live in the first century, as far as I can tell, uh, then um, some of you might feel out of date, but not that out of date, right? Uh, and so, those images also might be a little confusing. So, I'm going to do my best to walk you through those. And, and as we think about that, we come to this idea that God, in Revelation 18, He has finally come to judge the great powers of the world. Let's start with thinking about this. We all are tempted to sin in our lives. I know sin's kind of a churchy word, but sin simply refers to when you go your own way, when you do your own thing, when you say no to God, that's sin. And we all sin. That, that's something, if you're new here, you should know. We all sin. We don't proudly sin. Uh, we, we sadly sin, but we all do it. There's no perfect people here at Alpine Church. If you're perfect, please don't come back next week because you'll mess up the church for us. Uh, we don't want perfect people here. Uh, but we all sin. But here's one of the problems with sin. One of the problems with sin is I'm tempted to sin, and I do it. And, and who knows what kind of sin that could be. It could be any kind of sin. I do it. And then, what happens when I sin? Nothing happens. And by nothing, I mean God doesn't strike me dead from heaven. You ever thought about that before? You sin, and God doesn't hit you with a lightning bolt. And what that makes us think is, I got away with my sin. God must not care, because I lied, and God didn't zap me. You know, I stole something, God didn't zap me. I thought that thing about that person, and God didn't zap me. And so we can fool ourselves as humans of thinking, I get away with my sin. And we can then go and say, and fool ourselves and think, it's not a big deal to God what I do. And, and that's really what's going on in Revelation 18, is that humanity, the world, has decided that sin doesn't matter, and they think they can get away with it forever. So let's turn to Revelation 18. Verse 1, we see a, a mighty angel comes from heaven. This great big angel from heaven comes down to earth and comes down with this proclamation that we find in verse 2. In verse 2, it says this, He gave a mighty shout. Uh-oh, my, my uh, clicker is not responding, so if I could get the next slide, please. There it is, thank you. It says this, He gave a mighty shout. Babylon is fallen. That great city is fallen. She has become a home for demons. She is a hideout for every foul spirit, a hideout for every foul vulture and every foul and dreadful animal. So a big angel comes and says, Babylon is fallen. Babylon is over. The great city is destroyed. So the first thing we need to understand is what is Babylon? 
And it's going to take a, little, a few moments to unpack what Babylon is. If you read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you are familiar with the concept of Babylon. Babylon is the nation that came into Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the original Jewish temple built by Solomon, and carried the Jewish people into exile. This was no accident. It was God's judgment on His own people, because for hundreds of years, God's people had ignored Him. They did their own thing. They said no to God. They didn't follow His ways. And after hundreds of years of sinning and building up their sin, God said, enough is enough. And he said, I'm going to judge you. In order to do that, he said, I am going to bring a foreign nation, the Babylonians, and they are going to come to Jerusalem, and they are going to destroy you, and they're going to carry you off into exile. And that's exactly what happened. But here's the thing. The Babylonians were not holy, far from it. They were also themselves evil. They were also themselves terrible people. And so God said, I am not going to let Babylon be in charge forever. I am going to judge Babylon. And that's exactly what happens. And as you read the Bible, what you realize is that Babylon starts to represent any sort of human structure that is anti-God. Any people, any city, any nation, any organization, any institution that says no to God is represented by Babylon. So if you go a little further back in the Bible, if you go to Genesis chapter 11, I don't know if you remember the story, you're familiar with the story, but in Genesis chapter 11, we have the story of the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel is this tower that humanity comes together to build as a way to be defiant towards God, as a way to say, God, we don't need you, we can build this cool tower. And God destroys their work and He judges them. But that tower's name is Babel. It's the city of Babel, which is just short for Babylon. And so through the Bible, Babylon represents the city, the institutions that are anti-God. Now, let's go back to the book of Revelation. Babylon has fallen. Let's put on our first century glasses. In the first century, if we were Christians living in the first century, we were living in Ephesus, we were living in Corinth, we were living in Thyatira, wherever... When we read this passage, we would know that first and foremost, John, who writes the book of Revelation, is talking about the Roman Empire. The Babylon of their day, the Babylon that they lived in is the Roman Empire. Babylon is Rome, the great world city. In fact, not just a great world city, but the Roman Empire controlled everything, controlled the entire, what they would have called the civilized world at that point. This is the era of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. In other words, Rome was so complete and so total in how they controlled everything that there were no more wars for them to fight. And so what John is saying is that God will one day destroy the Roman Empire. He is going to judge the Roman Empire because of their sinfulness. Now, if we were Christians reading that, we would have been like, what? That's impossible. There's no way. It was sort of been like right immediately after World War II, if someone had said, you know, not too much longer, the United States is going to fall. You would have been like, you've got to be joking me. We're the only country with the atom bomb. How is it when we're the only one with the biggest weapon? There's no way that anyone could defeat us. That was sort of the feeling of the Roman Empire. But that's what, that's what John says, that the Roman Empire will fall. And it did, right? It eventually fell. I don't know if you know this. There's no Roman Empire anymore. It's gone. There's the city of Rome, but it's not an empire. 
So God eventually did bring his judgment. Took a while, but he brought his judgment. That's the first century glasses. You put on, the set, the, uh, put on a different set of glasses. Again, kids, these are not real glasses. In case you're wondering why you don't own these glasses, they're just a metaphor. Uh, but let's put on the future glasses. The future glasses tell us that shortly before the return of Jesus Christ, shortly before the return of Christ, there is a final Babylon, a final great city, a final great nation that is going to be anti-God that will rise up. Will it be called Babylon? I have no idea. Where will it be? I have no idea. You don't even need to ask. I don't know. <laughs> but what Revelation says is before the return of Christ, there will be one final Babylon that's anti-God that will receive his judgment. The universal glasses, they tell us that in every generation, there is a Babylon. There are types of Babylons, whether they're nations, they're cities, they're corporations. And then in our own day, putting on the contemporary glasses, they tell us that any government that is about injustice, any government that is oppressive, any institution or corporation that is about enriching itself at the expense of people and humanity is a type of Babylon. And God tells us clearly here what He's going to do to Babylon. Babylon is fallen. God doesn't say, well, if we all get together and we all fight it, we can defeat Babylon. <laughs> he doesn't say that the odds are stacked against us, but I bet, if we, I bet if we try really hard, we can do it. We can defeat Babylon. No, God says Babylon is fallen. In God's mind, it's an accomplished fact. The great city will be destroyed. God is so much greater than Babylon, there's no doubt about it. And when God is done with Babylon, this amazing empire is a place that is only good for demons and for unclean animals and unclean birds. All of this language in verse 2 comes from the book of Isaiah, because the prophet Isaiah, who was, who was predicting the coming of Babylon, God allowed him to see far into the future and to see that Babylon, even though they would destroy Jerusalem, they too would be judged by God. And so God is always about judging human powers, human sinfulness, including Babylon. Verse 3, let's move on. In verse 3, it says, I think I got my clicker back. Thank you. <laughs> we're now now we're, we're both trying to advance the slides, but thank you. Got it, Robert. Appreciate it. Verse 3, for all the nations have fallen because of the wine of her passionate immorality. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her because of her desires for extravagant luxury. The merchants of the world have grown rich. Here's what this passage is saying. It's telling us that, and this was true in the first century, that the, the kings of the other nations, if they wanted to get wealthy, if they wanted to have power, they had to align themselves with Rome. And here, God is re revealing their... their actions and their attitudes and their hearts that they've only been about growing rich. And so God says, not only is He going to judge the Roman Empire, but He's going to judge all the other surrounding nations because they have committed adultery with her. Often in the book of Revelation, sin is pictured as adultery or sexual immorality. And sometimes it does refer to actual sexual immorality, but often adultery is a, is a metaphor, it's a picture for spiritual immorality, spiritual idolatry. When we sin, it's like committing, uh, committing adultery towards God, and that's what we see here. Then in verse 7, we see what Babylon thinks of itself. I, I, this is important because I want you to see how the, the attitude of human arrogance, uh, what it's like, because it's depicted so clearly in verse 7. This is Babylon. This is the nation, the city talking. It says that she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so match it now with torment and sorrow. She boasted in her heart, I am queen on my throne. I am no helpless widow 
and I have no reason to mourn. This is the, this is the, the height of human arrogance. Now, it's, this is kind of a weird verse, because we don't talk like this, right? No one goes around and says, the city of Logan is like a queen on its throne, right? <laughs> She's a queen on her throne. No one will make her sad. No one will make her cry. This is very flowery language. But what, it's, what Babylon is saying here is, no one can get me. No one can touch me. What Rome is saying is, no one can compare with me. I don't need anyone's help. I'm not a helpless widow. And I, will, I have no reason to mourn because I never lose a battle. I never lose a war. And God comes in and he says, oh yeah? <laughs> Watch. And so there's all this human arrogance and all this human optimism. And it reminds me of even, even in our own hearts. In our own hearts, we can have this arrogance. The arrogance that says, man, my retirement account is just going to grow forever. <laughs> my home is just going to get it's just going to grow and increase and increase in value eternally, right? And I can count on it. And God says, no, your human schemes are not eternal. They're not going to last forever. He's going to judge them. He's going to bring them down. And in Revelation 18 and 17, we learn about how the city's destroyed, how Babylon's destroyed. Revelation 17, which we don't have time to look at, tells us that it's destroyed by these kings that grew rich off of it. It's sort of this interesting idea that Satan controls both Babylon and the surrounding nations, but Satan, at the end of the day, all he can do is destroy things. He's a destroyer, and so he even destroys his own city as it is mired in civil war. But then in chapter 18, what we see is that the final knockout punch comes from God himself who, who destroys the city. And then in verses 9 through 19 in, chap in this chapter, we have a funeral service for Babylon. A funeral service for the Roman Empire. And there's three different groups of people that get up and deliver eulogies about the Roman Empire. And the first are the kings of the earth that have grown wealthy off of Rome. And the kings of the earth are pictured there, and they're sorrowful, and they're sad, and they're sad because they've lost their money. That's why they're sad. They're sad, they're sad because they've lost their influence, they've lost their wealth. They're not sorrowful because they lost, because of their sins. They're sorrowful because they've lost the ability to make as much money as they had before. In the time when this is written, in the time of the, the Pax Romana, the Romans made their money off the exploitation of people. In fact, at this time in the Roman Empire, about 40% of the empire were slaves. 40% of the empire were slaves. And so you see that the kings and the aristocrats and the, all the wealthy class, they made their money off the exploitation of people. And now, because of God's judgment, that's no longer possible. The next group that you run into in Revelation 18 are the merchants, those who, who made their money by going throughout the Roman Empire. And, and what would happen is, as the Roman Empire expanded, as it went into new nations and new territories and new areas, the army would come in, they'd march in, and they'd conquer the land, kind of like in Gladiator, right? They'd march in and they'd conquer, and then right behind them would be the businessmen. The businessmen would come in right behind, and they'd see, well, what can we extract? What goods can we extract and, and bring back to Rome? And so the merchants were wholesale dealers who made their money off exploiting the common people. In fact, the way it worked in the Roman Empire is that the, the, the people in the center of the empire in Rome got rich at the expense of those on the outside. The average person in the Roman Empire lived on subsistence, which means they had to work that day to get that day's food. 
They were often mired in heavy debt uh, and, and heavy loans that they couldn't really h- hope to repay. And so there's just this crushing exploitation that comes and injustice that comes. It reminds me, uh, if you remember the Hunger Games, right? Kind of reminds me of the Hunger Games a little bit, right? You live in the capital city and like you can have blue hair and you can have a dress that lights on fire and uh, it's all good. But if you live in District 12, you know, you're kind of like, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty apocalyptic, right? And that's what it's like in the Roman Empire. If you're in the middle of the city, if you're one of these wealthy people, it's all great. You can exploit whoever you want. All the goods and taxes travel to Rome. But if you're the outside the city, you don't really have a lot of hope until God comes in and brings judgment. The last group, he said there's three groups. The third and final group are the people that make their money at sea. The, the, the people who control vast shipping and trading, and they make their money by trading goods and sending goods all over the Roman Empire. And they too, like everyone else, find that when Babylon is destroyed, they lose their meal ticket, and they're sorrowful, they're so sad about it. And we see that God, God doesn't care about their wealth, He doesn't care about their influence, He doesn't care about their power, He is going to bring judgment Now, what does that mean for you and me today? What it means for us is this, especially if you're a Christian, what it means for us today is that we have to be careful where we put our hope. Where do we place our hope? Where do we place our heart? Do we place it in these institutions and structures that we think will make us money and give us power, give us influence, get us the education that will give us the life we want? Is that where we put all our hope? Or do we put our hope in God? Because God will always judge Babylon. He's always going to bring down the powers of this world that are anti-Him. And so we need to align with Him. And that leads us to our next point, that if you're a follower of Jesus, God commands His people to pursue holiness and to leave Babylon. If you've ever worked with somebody who's, who's had a struggle with addiction, or if maybe you yourself have had a struggle with addiction, you know that often the best way for a person to gain victory over their addiction is they need to change their circumstances, right? So sometimes if you you have an addictive behavior, you need to make sure you don't go to those places that trigger that behavior. Or sometimes you need to stop hanging out with, with friends that kind of pull you towards that behavior. Or sometimes, I've had friends like this in my own life where we've said, you need to get up and move. You need to go to a new state. You need to move to a new area, at least for a while, so that you can get clean and you can make sure that you don't have any connections to that addictive past. And I think that is a really good picture for how God wants us to think of our relationship to Babylon. Look at what it says there in verse 4. It says, come away. Let's, let me see if I can go back one more. There you go. Come away from her, my people. Do not take part in her sins, or you will be punished with her. God tells the Christians in Babylon, you need to leave, and there's two reasons. First, God doesn't want you to take part in their sins, and secondly, God doesn't want you to be punished along with the city. In verse 5, God says that the sins of the city are, are being stacked higher and higher and making their way to heaven. Think about that Tower of Babel, right? The Tower of Babel, humans set up, we want to make a really tall, big tower that, that reaches heaven, not literally, metaphorically, that reaches heaven to show God we don't need Him. This is sort of the opposite of that. God says, I'm, gonna, I'm stacking up your sins and they're going to reach me. And once they reach me, it's judgment time. 
And God says, it doesn't matter if you say you're a Christian, if I find you in Babylon, you're going to be judged along with the rest of the city. So God calls His people to flee. Verse 8 says this, it says, therefore these plagues will overtake her in a single day. The judgment of Babylon comes quickly. It comes powerfully. It will catch people unaware. And so God says to flee the city of Babylon. Now, what does that mean, to flee the city of Babylon? It doesn't literally mean that God was telling Christians they have to move out of Rome. Because think about it. The letter of Revelation, the book of Revelation, written by John, and who does he write it to? First and foremost, he writes it to a group of Christians who are parts of seven different churches in Asia. They live in Asia. Now, I'm not great at geography, but I know that Rome is not in Asia. (laughs) So none of these people lived in Rome. So when God tells them to flee Babylon, he's not talking about physically moving, he's talking about a spiritual fleeing. He's like, don't give in to sinful temptations and sinful habits. Don't give in to sinful, addictive behavior. I, take, pull yourself away from those things that are so tempting and so alluring. Now, if you're a Christian, there's a problem here, and the problem is this. The problem is that we live in a tension. We live with tension. On the one hand, God tells us to flee Babylon, flee the world that says no to Him, flee the temptation of sin. But on the other hand, God actually wants us to to live where we are and live in Babylon. God's not telling us that the ideal thing for us as Alpine Church would be to all sell our houses and move up to the mountains and have like a little commune and wait for Jesus to return. Some groups have done that. It has never ended well, right? You can see Netflix documentaries on this. It never ends well. It always gets really weird really fast and ends really badly. So that's not what God's calling us to do. What God's calling us to do is to live with tension. Think about Jesus. What was Jesus known for doing with his time? He spent his time with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus spent most of his time with people who lived on the margins of society, people who the religious people didn't have time for the sinners of the world. That's who Jesus, he would go to their houses. He'd go to their parties. He'd invite them to follow him. That's who Jesus hung out with. He hung out with sinners. But he was also separate from the world, right? He, in his lifestyle, in his behavior, in his actions, he was holy. He honored God. And if you're a Christian, you and I have the same tension. God doesn't tell us to withdraw from the city and withdraw from people. He tells us to love people In the book of Jeremiah, God tells the exiles living in Babylon, He said, I have put you here for the good of the city. Pray for the good of the city. Get jobs. Get married. Have children. Work the land for the good of the city you find yourself in. So if you're a Christian, you live in Cache Valley, you should work for the good of Cache Valley. But at the same time, don't put all your hope in Cache Valley. Don't put your hope in the American system. Don't put your, your, your deepest joy and your eternal security in money and power and influence, because that's never going to pay off. God calls us to be very different kinds of people. We read about it in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. Before we get that there, though, let me just say this. What God is really calling us to do here is to be holy, holiness. Now, I know the word holy is definitely a churchy word. The word holy means basically to be set apart. So when the Bible says that God is holy, God is totally set apart. He's totally different than us. He's completely morally good. And the Bible says to be holy, God says, be holy like I am holy. 
Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is a tall order, right? I already said there's no perfect people here. So we sin. That's the reality. God makes a way for that. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But we have sin in our lives. But still, God wants us to pursue holiness. Now, typically, when we think of holiness, we think of it as God saying, don't do this. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Don't, don't, don't. And that's part of holiness. But also part of holiness is living a life that honors God, doing the good work, the good things. And so if you want a picture of what is it like to live, to be holy, then again, just look to Christ. Look to Jesus. Because Jesus lived a total life of holiness. And the Bible says if you're a Christian, that one of the main things that God is doing in you is He wants to change and transform your character and make you more and more like Jesus Christ. And so as the months go on and the years go on and the decades go on, your life should begin to look more like Jesus. And so, or another way to think about it is you want to live, as, if Jesus had your life, how would he live on this earth? And, and that's what it means to, to live a holy life, to grow, to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And that's what God wants for you and me. But it's hard. The command to be holy is hard. It's a tough command. It's tough because Babylon is attractive. That's why Babylon is called an attractive woman, a prostitute. Because materialism is attractive, greed's attractive, power's attractive, sexual immorality's attractive. If, if these things weren't attractive, we wouldn't do them, right? I mean, if, if like Brussels sprouts were, sprouts were bad and we shouldn't eat them, we'd all be like, no problem, right? <laughs> we can avoid them. We're not tempted. Maybe some of you are. You're weird people. That's okay. But most of us, we wouldn't be tempted if the healthy stuff was stuff we were supposed to avoid. It doesn't work that way. But look at how God challenges us. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are not like that. For you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for He called you out of the darkness and into His wonderful light. Notice what God says about you. If you're a Christian, you are a chosen people from every tongue, tribe, nation, ethnicity formed together. We are a, a chosen people, all equal at the foot of the cross. You are royal priests. You are a holy nation. There it is. We are to be set apart. We are to be holy. We're to be a holy nation, God's very own possession. And I know the call to be holiness sounds hard, and it sounds demanding, and it, it, I mean, it takes self-denial, I'll admit that. But look at how God describes the call to holiness. It says, He called you out of the darkness into His wonderful light. That doesn't sound oppressive to me. If someone says, hey, you're in a dark room, come into the light, it's like, wow, I can see now. That's what God says that holiness is. It's coming out of the darkness into the light. And look what happens when you and I live lives of holiness. You show others the goodness of God. When you are holy like God, when you live like Jesus Christ, you show others the goodness of God. It doesn't mean this. That doesn't mean you're self-righteous. That's not what this verse is saying. Please don't leave here and say, wow, I can be self-righteous. <laughs> I can go to my friends who aren't Christians and say, oh, I would never watch that movie. Oh, I would never use that language. That, no, one wants to hear, no one wants to hear from you if that's your attitude. That's self-righteousness. That's the Pharisee, and that's not what God's talking about. What God's talking about is as we mix it up with people, and as we just love people, and as we 
don't pursue the things of this world, as we say no to greed and as we say no to power and as we're people who are humble and gracious and self-controlled and caring, as we work for justice in our world, in our communities, as we stand up to injustice, as we do all these things, we show our holiness and people will look at us and say, wow, wow, what, you are different. What makes you different? And then you just point them to the goodness of God. That's what this says. That's what holiness does. So God calls us to flee Babylon, pursue holiness. I'm sure we all could talk about for like an hour how this could look in our lives, how we could play it out. And that's what your small group is good to do that in or your ment uh, mentoring relationship you have. But I got one more thing I want to say today, and I'm running out of time. It's a good thing we don't have a last song because I, I don't have time for the last song. I'm running a little behind today. Uh, but I, I, there's one thing I want to say, and it's so important, I, I don't want to skip over it, and that's that God's judgment is always right and good. Let's be honest. The language of judgment is very difficult. It is very difficult to read the Bible and to read the book of Revelation and to see all this talk of judgment, because I don't know all of you, but you all seem like really nice people, Okay. <laughs> I don't think you're going around calling condemnation down on the heads of people out there in the world, you know, maybe when they cut you off. But other than that, you're not really doing it, right? We're, we're kind people. You're a loving person. Or maybe this has happened to you, because this has happened to me a bunch of times over the years. I've been trying to explain the gospel to somebody. I've been telling people about God's love for them, and they say, well, what about all that judgment language? I can't get behind that judgment stuff. That just doesn't seem right, doesn't seem good, doesn't seem fair. So let's talk for a moment about judgment. You know, sometimes people say, man, God was so mean in the Old Testament. He was so angry in the Old Testament. He's so loving in the New Testament. I mean, look at Jesus. Look at those pictures of Jesus. He's like a hippie. He, he wouldn't hurt anybody, right? <laughs> He's so nice looking and, and, and all about love. And it's true that God is a God of love, but I'm like, have you read the book of Revelation? Because <laughs> when you get to the book of Revelation, God's pretty mad. <laughs> God gets pretty angry. It gets pretty PG-13, all right? There's a lot of blood coming in the, next, in the chapters ahead. A lot of death, and Jesus is behind a lot of it. So if you, if you say that God is mad in the Old Testament, okay, that's true. God's also loving in the Old Testament, I would say. And I'd say, yeah, God is extremely loving in the New Testament, but He's also really mad at sin in the, in the New Testament also. So how do we put all this together? What do, we, what do we think about it? We can't evade it. We can't pretend like it's not true. Let's take a look at chapter 18, verse 20. It says this. God tells us, rejoice over her fate, talking about Babylon. Rejoice over her fate, O heaven, and people of God, and apostles and prophets, for at last God has judged her for your sakes. You see, God doesn't tell us to be sorrowful over His judgment. He instead says to celebrate and rejoice. This is a good thing, but it's important we understand why it's a good thing. Verse 24, it says this, talking about Babylon, it says, in your streets flowed the blood of the prophets and of God's holy people and the blood of people slaughtered all over the world. So in other words, the reason that God's people should rejoice is because Babylon, whether it's the Roman Empire, whether it's, uh, you know, oppressive governments over the history of the world, oppressive governments today that kill Christians, they're killing Christians simply for being a follower of Jesus, and as a result, they deserve God's judgment and God's punishment, and it's a good thing that happens. But not only that, this oppressive end-of-the-world government and, or nation is guilty of the blood of people slaughtered all over the world. 
not just the death of Christians, but the death of innocent people all over the world. And so when God brings his, just, his judgment, guess what? He's bringing his justice. He's putting an end to human evil. He's revealing the fact that he's a just God, that all the sin, all those times you've been sinned against in your life, all the sin, the oppression, the injustice, all of that is going to be dealt with by the last day. And as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, you can rejoice. But here's the truth. The truth is, it's not just nations that deserve judgment. It's not just institutions that deserve judgment. Every human deserves it. All of us have the sin problem. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because we are lost in our sins, God did something. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into this world. And Jesus lived a sinless life because He's God Himself, and He died on a cross, was raised from the dead after three days. And He died on that cross to pay the penalty of our sins because we couldn't do it ourselves. And the Bible says if you trust in Him, you receive forgiveness. And the fact that you should, re- you should receive judgment is removed. Jesus bore it for you, and you can find eternal life. You know, when I read the book of Revelation, when I read the book of Revelation, I am not shocked by God's judgment. I'm really not. When I read the book of Revelation, I'm shocked by God's grace. I am shocked that chapter after chapter after chapter, humanity, we say, no, God, we don't want you. Leave. Get out of here. Leave us alone. That's what we say, whether it's in our individual lives or as a community. We say, God, get out of here. We don't want you. And God keeps saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. I want to forgive you. I want to bring you into relationship. I want you to join my family. I want to adopt you. I want to heal your hurts. God says that over and over again. And then finally, at the end of Revelation, he says, okay, if you want to say no to me, I'm not going to force you to love me. I accept your choice. But that doesn't have to be your choice. You can say yes to God, yes to salvation, yes to forgiveness. And I hope you'll do that today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the book of Revelation. Thank you so much that you show us what is behind just our lives here on earth and the world here uh, that, that we see with our senses and our eyes. God, I pray that we would flee Babylon, that we would flee its temptation, that we would flee um, just any kind of system power that says no to you, God. We acknowledge that evil and sin are not just out there, but they're in here in the human heart. And so, God, we just seek your forgiveness. Lord, would you be with us? Help us to be people who embrace holiness, to be a holy nation so that others would see your goodness. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.